What is the oldest Yuletide beverage? And what future state's naval base was bombed by the Japanese in World War II? If you say Hawaii, you're only half right. Answers <laughs> okay. to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Well, you've got a holiday question there, Marcia. And I do. what is it? I do. What is the oldest Yuletide beverage? And it's still consumed today. People have it every Christmas. They don't have it other times. But what do you think that might be that goes back to Roman times? Rum and Coke. No, just... Uh, <laughs> okay, but it's, uh, it's yeah. hot buttered rum. Oh, that sounds good. I had one the other night. But no, that's not it. Okay. Think about it. It's something our boy always wants in the refrigerator when he comes home for Christmas. Eggnog. That's it. The oldest Yuletide beverage. Well, many food historians believe modern eggnog is a descendant of something called posset. Did you ever hear of that? No, I never P-O-S-S-E-T. Heard it. It's a milky ale-like drink served warm in medieval Britain. By the 13th century, posset had become popular among monks and was used in celebrations and toasts as a nod to good health and prosperity. Since it contained sherry, milk, and eggs, all foods eaten only by the wealthy mm. and the monks, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry was eventually swapped out for rum in the American colonies, so you you were on the rum track there. Okay. Though some early versions, like George Washington's personal recipe, <laughs> included bourbon whiskey instead. You'd like that. Wow. <laughs> so you add the... Uh, the poison and uh, add the eggnog, which is always in our refrigerator at Christmas. So how does it go back to the Roman times? They used to drink posset. Oh, okay. Uh, it's milky ale drink uh, during the medieval Britain. That was something they made, and it just carried over, and then they started adding milk and eggs wow. and sherry, but it goes back to medieval times. That's interesting. It's interesting. We always know the origins of alcoholic-based <laughs> things, but not necessarily other things. Isn't that interesting? Well, it shows you what we value as people. It's the hierarchy of needs, Bob. Okay. <laughs> All right, Marsha. World War II history. What future state's naval base was bombed by the Japanese in World War II? And you would say... Hawaii. Yes, because we have the Pearl Harbor anniversary on December 7th. But you're only half right. The uh, Japanese most assuredly did bomb the U.S. naval base in Hawaii. They bombed it twice on December 7th, 1941. But most people don't realize another future state had a harbor and a naval base bombed by the Japanese. In fact, it was bombed three times by the Japanese. Well, that would have to be Alaska. That is exactly right. U.S. naval bases in Alaska and Hawaii were both bombed by the Japanese in World War II. Six months after the Pearl Harbor attack on Hawaii, Japan's Air Force struck an American naval and air base in Alaska. They bombed Dutch Harbor twice on June 3, 1942, and then came back the next day and bombed it a third time. Three air raids Jeez. on the U.S. naval air base in Dutch Harbor, Alaska that killed 43 people. Of course, Pearl Harbor killed a lot more than yeah. that in the thousands. Bob, how did the tuxedo get its name? That was the Tuxedo Club in New York, Upper State, New York? No. 
So it's not the Tuxedo Club? I always heard that it was. Did you? Well, no. But up until one evening in 1886, Bob, the accepted formal dress for men was a suit with long swallowtails in the back. You know mm. what that is, those tails? Yes, right. Okay. But one festive evening in New Jersey, young Griswold Lorillard. Well, that's uh, quite a name. Yeah, it, Griswold is Chevy Chase. The heir to a tobacco fortune shocked his fellow country club members by showing up for a formal affair in a dinner jacket without tails. Oh, oh my, my no. God. The scandal, <laughs> the scandal. When the shock wore off, the mimicking began. And other young men joined in with that wacky new look, which was first seen in that country club located in Tuxedo Park, New Jersey. Okay, so it was Tuxedo. Yeah. Okay. Tuxedo Park, New Jersey. It's a it's a place. Okay. That's the answer. So I was right. No, you said Tuxedo Lounge or something. Oh, I said club. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you were on the right track. So that's of. where it got its name. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey, New Jersey. So what he did was a fashion faux pas. Yeah, big Ooh, time. <laughs> which became a big thing, a modern thing. Can you imagine the scandal? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. All right. I've got a couple of holiday questions about holiday windows, you know, windows in stores. Okay. Yeah. yeah. New York City has four famous stores that continue to create holiday window displays. Oh, good. Macy's, Bergdorf Goodman, Bloomingdale's, and Saks Fifth Avenue. Cool. But which originated the first holiday window holiday, display? Gosh, which one is the oldest? I, I, I don't know if Macy's goes back. I know the parade goes way back, but I, well, what was the first? I'll just say Bloomingdale's. No, it is Macy's. Macy's okay. Yes, Roland Hussey Macy Sr., who is the founder of Macy's Department Store. He's believed to have unveiled the very first Christmas-themed display window in 1874. Now, by that I mean they didn't use merchandise. They're trying to create some kind of experience for people. Magical thing, yeah. yes. Just as uh, today's window displays reflect current pop culture, what was the first holiday window display doing? What pop culture did it reflect? Elves and Santas. Well, and like yeah, like Bloomingdale's Santas. recently teamed with Warner Brothers to create scenes from the film Wonka about young Willy Wonka. So oh, yeah? that's their holiday window display. So in 1874, what was the first Macy's holiday window display featuring? I would just think it was Santa and his workshop elves. I would think so, too. But no. No, it was a collection of porcelain dolls depicting scenes from Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Now, that was the most famous runaway success novel of yeah. the 19th century. And the connection to Christmas was the fact that the slave, Tom, never abandoned his Christian values despite his life of slavery. I'll be damned. And then in 1883, Macy's added animation with the circular track depicting Santa being pulled by a reindeer. So they came out with the beginning of this whole stuff. I tell you, uh, windows, department store windows were a big part of my childhood. My mom and I would go downtown on the bus and go to look at all the window displays. And it was fabulous. I 1874 was the first one. That was Macy's. Yes. That's the answer. I wasn't that. there, but. What? You weren't? <laughs> my, I was, it was. You and your mother weren't there then? Okay. <laughs> Later. Okay. Bob, why do we say that the person in charge is calling the shots? Um, that must have a military connotation. Maybe it was the 
the leader or the commander in the field. He's calling the shots. He's telling when to when to fire the cannon, when to fire the guns. So I think that's where it came yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, good guess, but nah, nah. Oh, not, really? Nah. Not at all. The well, expression comes from a form of billiards. In the game of straight pool, the person shooting is required to specify both the ball they intend to hit and the pocket they will sink it into. Okay, so the eight ball in the side pocket. That's right, yeah. And in straight pool, you'd call every shot. So it's it can get very... Very hard to so do. So that's where it came from. It wasn't until the mid 20th century that the term moved out of the smoky pool halls and into everyday usage. It was just a pool hall term until the mid 20th century. <laughs> All right, more things about Macy's and shop windows. What did Macy's introduce 12 years before its first holiday window display? Another Christmas tradition in retail shopping. Uh, it wasn't the parade. That was later, and that was one of their innovations. Yeah. Yes, believe so it or Macy's not. Macy's is all about Christmas. Yeah. Um, Santa Claus in the store. That's exactly right. Okay. It was in uh, during the Civil War. Some sources really? say the Santa first appeared at Macy's in 1862, others in 1864, but they were the first to do it. Now, you might think there were other retail centers around the world that started these things, like London, like Selfridges. But you know what? Harry Selfridge, he right. was American. Yeah. He left Chicago to go to London to open up a British store, and he brought this window idea there. Huh? He had elaborate window displays year-round, especially at Christmas, and then other retailers followed. By the way, he's also credited with coining the phrase, only X more shopping days yeah, till really? Christmas. Oh, yeah, and, and <laughs> What a winner that was, too, right? And the customer's always right. That yeah. was uh, oh, something really? he also pioneered. Okay, back to Macy's window. Yes, Even dear. its current window, all uh-huh. right? Every Christmas time, what does Macy's always devote some holiday window space to? It's a movie. Uh, a story it, that was in a movie. It would have to be an old movie, <sighs> old Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. No, more of a cartoon. It involved Macy's. Oh, of course, Miracle on 34th That's Street. That's right. Every year, Macy's devotes a set of windows to Miracle on 34th Street. That's a story about the little girl who learns to believe in Santa after meeting Chris That's Kringle. That's a wonderful movie. Yeah. And like you said, they also invented the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The first one was in 1924. And in that first one, store employees were dressed in costumes. Live animals borrowed from the Central Park Zoo were also used, and professional bands and floats. And it was an instant success. Yeah. Our local bands go there for Thanksgiving now to perform. That's right. It's amazing. Okay, Bob, can you name any of the eight countries located in the alpine region of europe the alpine region you know the alpine mountain range yes 750 miles long eight countries right yeah okay so there's how many you can get france italy switzerland german austria that's five wait france austria germany switzerland Uh uh-huh um, let's see. What would be another one or two? Three to go. Okay, so uh, Czech- Czechoslovakia or no. the Czech Republic? No. Okay, tell me. Liechtenstein, Monaco, Slovenia. Okay, those are the reasons I didn't That's remember right. those. <laughs> I wonder, but you did very well and uh, <laughs> calling out Switzerland, Austria, Italy, Liechtenstein, France, Germany, Monaco. I think yeah? it's Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. Yes. I guess. Anyway, that's all the countries on the Elk Mountain Range. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Okay. Back to history, back to World War II history, okay? Oh, yay. We were talking about two states that had naval bases bombed by the Japanese. Hawaii uh, and Hawaii Alaska. Hawaii and Alaska. 
What future state was physically invaded by the Japanese in、oh, World War II? Future state. Oh. Yes, a future state. Well, that would be Alaska too. That's right. Several days after that Dutch harbor attack, six thousand to seven thousand Japanese troops landed in the Aleutian Islands. I don't remember reading about that. I don't remember reading about that either. They occupied Alaska's Atu and Kiska Islands for nearly four months. And by August, they'd been driven out by U.S. and Canadian forces. Now, the Aleutian Island campaign—that was the only foreign invasion of U.S. soil in World War II. There were also some air attacks on Oregon with、uh, fire balloons, which killed six civilians. But this was the only actual foreign invasion of U.S. soil in World War II. And aren't the Aleutian Islands the islands that are just a few miles from Russia? That's right. So Russia could have taken care of them for us, couldn't they? Well, <laughs> don't know. They were kind of on the fence at that point, I think, before they came on our side. Nobody knew where the Russians were、oh, going、yeah. to go at Still first. Still don't. Okay, the artworks, Bob, of the Birth of Venus, the Botticelli painting,、mm-hmm. and the Vitruvian Man—that's Da Vinci's famous artwork—appear on two Euro coins. In what country? Well, I would say Italy. That's. <laughs> I'm just that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. I'm just seeing if you would get it. Since that's where they were probably painted、yes. or painted by an Italian. Yes.、Uh, and the Vitruvian man represents the perfect man based on ancient knowledge and proportions present in human anatomy. Okay. The illustration depicts the naked ideal of a healthy form of man. Oh yes, indeed. <laughs> I love it. You know,、uh, I won't say who the client was, but I worked for an ad agency in Milwaukee in the、uh, '90s, and we had a major pharmaceutical、uh-huh. as one of our clients, and we put that illustration on one of the brochures that、uh, they used, and they insisted on a loincloth covering. The Vitruvian Man. Oh, you're kidding! Yes. Oh, for、and、God's sake! I remember the artist doing it was so disgusted.、Aww. I can't believe they want to do this. You know. Oh, jeez. Yes,、yeah, so、we had to cover up、uh, the Vitruvian Man's、uh, Vitruvi. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I put it up on the wall in our bedroom. He used to have bodybuilders and other people come into his studio. Yeah, so to he could study anatomy.、Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so we were talking about Macy's influence on retail shopping、mm-hmm. during the holidays. So all of the things we talked about were pioneered in New York. The first holiday window display, the first in-store Santa Claus, a Thanksgiving Day parade to kick off the shopping season. What other holiday traditions can New York City claim? A big Christmas tree in the middle of town. That's right. The first city to have a public tree lighting ceremony、yeah. was in New York, and the first place to have a Christmas tree decorated with electric light bulbs. Okay. You know who did that? Edison. It was the vice president of the Edison Electric Light Company, Edward Hibbard Johnson, in 1882. He had a tree in his house wired with 80 red, white, and blue light bulbs, and he put the tree in a window in his townhouse on East 36th Street so people passing by could see it. Then he called the press, and they came over, and that was the beginning of it. They publicized it. And one more thing: what famous Christmas story was written by a New York City resident? Oh well, what was that? The,、um, the- who was the person? What was his name? I don't know. Clement Clark Moore. Yes, he was a prominent property owner in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City, and he wrote. He reinvented Santa Claus as a jolly Dutchman pulled by eight tiny reindeer. The visit from Saint Nicholas. He wrote that for his six children, never realizing he was creating folklore for the whole world. He was a prominent property owner in New York City. I always think of him living out in the countryside、uh-huh, somewhere. But it was you know? New York City, yeah. yeah. I think it's time for a break. Okay, do. You're listening to the off ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, Boomer. 
I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer with Robert. Yes, we like to enlighten you with colorful features, boomer news, boomer history, but we will also mystify you. And this one coming up in 24, that's going to be really creepy. That's an astronomer standing at ground zero where the 2017 and 2024 eclipse paths will cross over Carbondale, Illinois, the home of OK Boomer with Robert. And you can find OK Boomer with Robert wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We do this every week for the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and its internet radio station. And then we put it on podcast platforms and it's heard all over the world. Okay, Marsh. Back to holiday traditions. Alrighty. Retail holiday traditions. Uh-huh. How did the Industrial Revolution help make window displays possible? Oh, oh, I got I'll bet it's uh, uh, the mechanization of things where you got a moving Santa Claus and uh, eyes and arms that move and that? I'll Is give that you it? that, but that was not what I was looking for. What are you looking for? I'm looking for what you look through. The window. The window. The window. It was the widespread availability of large plate glass during the Industrial Revolution. That huh. was a new technology. I thought of that. That let retailers build windows spanning the lengths of their shops to display merchandise. Before that, they didn't have big windows like that. So stores, starting around 1760 and... Continuing to 1840 and afterwards, that's the Industrial Revolution era, began competing by showcasing their wares and their windows. Then they began to adopt purely decorative displays Ah. and led to Macy's original Uncle Tom's Cabin story (laughs) with porcelain dolls and the first uh, holiday window display. Very cool. But it was the technology of the Industrial Revolution, the window-making technology. And here's a question from my beloved which is the kind of question he likes. What are the four U.S. state capitals named after presidents? Okay, there's Madison, Wisconsin. Right. There's Jefferson City, Missouri. Correct. Okay. Just give me a moment. Okay, there's there's Nixon, Utah. No, no, that's not. (laughs) I don't think they named everything after Richard. Two more, right? Uh Uh-huh. Are they in uh, the east or the west? One is the south and one is the midlands. (laughs) <laughs> the Midlands? The Midwest? Yeah. Well, it's more Midwest. Okay. Named after one of the... Presidents. One US. of the presidents. Yeah. Washington. Yeah. Big famous one you're missing here. Lincoln, Nebraska. Yes, Lincoln, Nebraska. Go. Yes. And then who There's else? There's only one left. This I, is in, I'll give you the state, Mississippi. Jackson, That's Mississippi. It. There you go. Oh, I'll be darn. <laughs> you know, I never associated Jackson yeah. with Andrew Jackson yeah. in Mississippi. Well, now you will. Wow. Okay. Okay. I, so they are... Jefferson, Madison, Jackson, and Lincoln. Yes. Okay. All these are state capitals. Correct. In what states? <laughs> oh, we did that already. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. Well, here's something I've actually often wondered about, Bob. Okay. What the heck is the board in the term room and board? Like, mm. like uh, I'll put you up with room and board. Yes, that's a good question. It's, and I'll give you this. I thought maybe it was the slats in the bed, but that would be the room, so it's not that. I thought so, too. I thought the board is what you sleep on. Yeah, no. Got a room, room and a board. Yeah, the room is... Uh, board. Okay, yeah. so board is a euphemism or a term for something else. Uh-huh. So board must be the board you eat from where you have your food. Oh, room and board. Because usually that's room and board is a combination of very those two good things. Very deduction there, sweetheart. Okay, it comes from the planks that were laid across trestles to form a primitive dining room table when you sat down to eat in okay. the good old days. Wow. So, 
they when people would come over to eat, you'd get out the trestles and put down the boards. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me, we have to get our boards up. Yes, we on. do. <laughs> okay, one more holiday tradition that you can relate to New York City. We talked about all the other things. Uh-huh. One more, and it started in New York as a public celebration. What is it? It's the end of the Christmas week. The end of the Christmas week. Oh, of course, the uh, dropping of the New Year's Eve ball. That's right. Yeah, the ringing end of the New Year with a public celebration. Mm-hmm. According to New York City archives, people began doing that in Times Square in 1904. Really? That long ago? And then starting in 1907, they began watching a specially lit ball descend a flag top. So that Times Square celebration is now more than 100 years old, and every New Year's Eve, more than 90,000 people gather there. And then millions more watch it from around the world. Yeah. I'll be darned. But isn't that interesting how many of those traditions began in New York City? Yeah. The first holiday window display, first store Santa Claus, Thanksgiving parade, Christmas trees lighted with electric lights, and then the uh, holiday tradition of ringing in the new year all started there. Okay. So we owe New York a debt of gratitude. Indeed. (laughs) How long, Bob, was a typical working day in ancient Rome? A typical working day in Uh ancient Rome? Uh For who? Now, if it's for a slave, it was all day. (laughs) This is just a typical working day. Well, I imagine it would be dawn to dusk, so that's probably from, you know, like uh, maybe 6 in the morning until 6 or 7 at night, so 12 hours. Yeah, you would be so wrong. Since tracking the sun was the Roman citizen's principal timekeeping method, the workday was structured around solar positions that were easy to measure with the naked eye, such as sunrise, noon, and sunset. For this reason, a typical citizen would usually start their workday at dawn, like you said, Mm -hmm. but they would stop working at noon. (laughs) That's it? That's it. They left the rest of the afternoon open for leisure, and citizens from all levels, all levels of Roman society would spend that time attending sporting events, theatrical performances, and the all-important public baths. I just can't believe people didn't work longer than Nope, they just, noon. that was it, from uh, sunup to noon. All right. I have two animal questions. All right. All right. Dogs have a total of about 10 sounds they can make, different noises. That's what we think. That's what scientists have. I know, but I mean, dogs might think, we do more than 10. <laughs> That's different. And Bob will now recreate. <laughs> no, I will not recreate all 10 sounds. How many do cats have? Oh, cats. Cats have, I would think cats have fewer if dogs only have 10, but you'll probably tell me cats have many, many more. So the answer is many, many more. <laughs> yes, 100. Oh, my goodness. Think about that. We had both, a cat and a dog, and Bowser, our cat, was able to convey a whole lot of feelings a whole lot of time. Well, when, when you <laughs> name a cat Bowser, what do you think it's going to do? <laughs> he was, Come on! He was a nutcase. Okay, second question. <laughs> we humans have five basic taste abilities. Sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and savory. Okay. How many do dolphins and whales have? How many tastes? Wow. And we know this because we've done research on it. We have. And we've asked them about it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I'll say they have, okay, I'll say they have more than we have. I'm going to be safe here on all these questions. Uh Much more. Uh Uh-huh. All right. That's the answer. Oh, no. The answer is one. One taste? Yeah. Only They can only taste one thing. 
I but, have no idea, Marcia. Um, I'll say salt. I'll say sweet. I'll say the dolphins sweet. can taste sweet. Yes. No, it's salt. It's the only thing they can. Oh, well, they're in salt all day. So, I, Is that the reason? <laughs> yes, I can yes. taste salt. Yes. I would I, think that they would taste something different because they're in salt all yes, day. Yes, you would think. And scientists have concluded that this is likely caused by genetic mutations, that they used to have more, but that's just... How do left they, the building. How do you know this? Come uh, on. I always wonder about these researchers. Yep, we have uh, we uh, had, did a survey of the dolphins. <laughs> 98% of the dolphins said they could only taste one thing. <laughs> researchers were particularly surprised by the loss of their bitter receptors, as many toxins in the sea have a bitter taste. Hmm. But this slow but steady loss of taste is likely tied to how whales and dolphins eat because they they tend to swallow everything whole instead oh, of chewing. Okay. So, so they never use their uh, taste buds. They don't need them. They don't say, oh, this tastes good. They just I'm swallow hungry. the whole thing. I'm hungry and then I'm yes. moving on. And this is their deduction. The researchers. Okay. So who knows? <laughs> there you go. One taste salt. Oh, dear. All right, Marcia, switching to movies. What's the newest trend in best actor awards? Now, there's a new trend. Okay. Now, you might not think of it as a trend, but it is a trend. Because when you look at the numbers, how many actors have received awards for acting in these pictures? Okay. It's blank picks, P-I-C-S, blank picks. There's a name they use for those. Oh, okay. It's Uh, a type of film. I have no idea. Uh, Let me see. They're pictures about real people. Oh, okay. Uh, That would be... Biographies, biopics? Biopics, that's right. Yeah. Yay. Yes, there have always been biopics going way back to, God, there was some silent films on Lincoln that were done by Thomas Edison, but rarely did people win awards for them, but no longer. 26 performances from biopics have won the Oscar for Best Actor, and half of them have been since 1990. No kidding. Yeah. For the first time in Oscar history, over the last decade, the number of nominees for biopics have surpassed nominees who played original characters. A 23-22 split that dates back to 2010. Ah. Now, you might say, well, give me some examples, right? Famous biopics in our life include Raging Bull. That was where Robert De Niro uh, yeah. won for playing, uh, what, Jake LaMotta. Sissy Spacek won for playing Loretta Lynn and Coal Miner's Daughter. Daniel Day-Lewis for My Left Foot. George C. Scott was for... Uh, Patton. Patton, yes. <laughs> Soldier. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman won for playing Truman Capote. We just saw one. Uh, Oppenheimer. That's right. The Oppenheimer film. Well, maybe the Barbie film. That's a biopic. Is it really? She's not a real person, though. She's not. Oh, sorry. Sorry to make you feel bad about that. Other biopic films that recently won Best Actor Oscars include Gandhi, Amadeus, and The King's Speech. All those were great. They not only produce Oscars, but bio box office dollars, too. Oppenheimer was the highest grossing biopic of all time. Really? Of all time? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. What was the biopic that was more popular prior to this? Uh, You won't believe this one either. And we both saw it too. Barbie? Bohemian Rhapsody, (laughs) the Queen biopic. Really? And we'd love that. Yeah, Freddie Mercury. Oh, he was great in that. That uh, recently, let's see, that was $910.8 million worldwide. And Oppenheimer recently grossed more than $912 million Mm. across the globe. Well, they were both excellent films and and they both deserved that award for acting. So there you go, biopics, the newest trend in Best Actor Awards. It just kind of crept up on us. Uh-huh. All right. I'm going to close with a quote by Dorothy Parker, one of the famous witty women of the world. The cure for boredom is curiosity. 
There is no cure for curiosity. That's right. There is no cure for curiosity. You can never satisfy curiosity. And the cure for boredom is curiosity. That's right. right? It is. Okay. All right. Uh, Well, that's it for today. (laughs) We hope that you had some of your curiosity satisfied, not all of it, by (laughs) listening to The Off-Ramp. And we encourage you to participate. If you'd like to submit a question or facts that you'd like us to stump the other one with, you can do that by going to our website, theofframp.show. On the web <laughs> and scrolling down to contact us. <laughs> Little synaptic laps there, babe. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off Ramp. Ramp. The Off Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library. Cedarburg, Wisconsin.